Welcome to Let's Talk Memoir, a podcast for memoir lovers, readers, and writers. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. Today, my guest is Martina Clark. She is the author of My Unexpected Life, an international memoir of two pandemics, HIV and COVID-19. She worked for more than 20 years for the United Nations system and now teaches writing and critical reading for CUNY. She's been living with HIV for more than half her life, 30 years and counting, and survived COVID-19 in 2020. Martina has traveled to more than 90 countries and conducted condom demonstrations in at least 50 of them. She's traveled by boat, bus, and plane, but never by elephant or camel. My Unexpected Life is her first book. Welcome, Martina. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Oh, I'm so glad you're here. I would love for you to share a little bit about My Unexpected Life for readers who have not read it yet. Sure. So it is a print book and an audio book, which I narrated, which was an amazing experience as a writer. Side Mm -hmm. note. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And My Unexpected Life is, it's a braided memoir that combines my personal journey with HIV, my professional work on HIV internal to the United Nations system, and a lot of travel stories in between. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it gives a sort of a personal insider's view of the, what I call the squishy underbelly of the UN. And uh, mm-hmm. hopefully, besides all of the personal stuff and the work stuff, shares how important it is to change systems from within. Mm-hmm. And um, that any one person can make a difference, no matter how small. And that if you get a couple people together who make a difference, that just makes more difference and more and more. And so everybody has a role to play in changing our world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that comes across in your book. And I, you do travel so much and you've started <laughs> your chapters with, can you describe how you, dis, uh, you begin each of your chapters, what the title is like? <laughs> yeah, so the chapters are basically place markers, if you will, where I put the name of uh, the city and or the country with the population and then where it is located geographically. And I did that because the book moves around a lot. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't want people to not know where they were at any given moment and have to go back and forth all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, But it was really fun. Um, yeah. <laughs> it was really fun doing it. <laughs> well, also, I, did you were you surprised when you cataloged all this exactly how many how much you traveled, or did you already know? Like you knew it was a lot, but were you surprised by how much? Um, well, the truth is, it's actually uh, just a, like a fraction. Oh I my traveled, gosh! Yeah, that, I sort of tried to get places that were representing all parts of the world, so a little here, there, and everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, but I actually traveled a lot more than what is in the book mm-hmm. you know well that's true because then the book would be really really be long <laughs> but, but I mean when you started to think about it I mean it's amazing especially for someone like me who I've traveled just a smidge and, and I don't have a lot of wanderlust um, and you were doing work while you were traveling and you know I, we haven't really talked about how your life changed when you were weren't you 29 when you got diagnosed or is that 28 yeah 28 right mm-hmm. so and maybe you can just offer a little bit of background before we talk about the writing of this book and stuff. Maybe you could just share a little bit about how you found out that you were HIV positive. Sure. So I was living in San Francisco 
and I actually had been traveling. I came back and I just sort of never felt right again. And um, my doctor tested me for all sorts of things and then said, well, you're 28, you're single, so let's test you for HIV since you're not married, mm. um, which was, <laughs> you mm -hmm, know, no, no judgment mm -hmm. there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no judgment at all. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that was how I found out. And surprisingly, in the early 1990s in San Francisco, there were very few services for women. Um, right. And it was also before treatment was available, viable treatment. So I just sort of launched myself into activism because I thought I had nothing to lose. Mm -hmm. So when did you know that you wanted to write this book? How long was it an idea for you? And then how did you begin? Mm -hmm. I think it had been an idea for a long time. I, basically, HIV aside, I had always wanted to be a writer. Um, and I had done writing, but not. Um, not a lot of it and not very seriously. Mm. But the writer was sort of always in me. Um, and then in 2008, in the fall, I got really sick for the very first time. Mm -hmm. And I had never been on treatment. And suddenly my body was just failing me. And mm -hmm. I realized that I own a little piece of the history of the response to the pandemic because mm -hmm. I was the first openly HIV positive person hired by UNAIDS. And I wanted to make sure that that piece of history was documented. And I knew that if I didn't tell my story, nobody else really can because I lived it, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to write it. I started just sort of piecing together travels and moments that felt important and quickly realized that it was um, also a little bit more than just my story, but the story of other women who were really active in this pandemic. And our stories as women with HIV are often overlooked. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. And how long would you say, it's kind of a tricky question, because the process of writing a book, thinking about it, editing it, getting it out there, all that, it's just all involved in the timeline. But about how long do you feel it took you to write from the beginning to having it published? As the meme says, it was 87 years. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but in seriousness, I, I really started working on it in um, early 2009, and it was published in October of 2021. Mm -hmm. So it took a minute. <laughs> right. And so you, you mentioned a little bit earlier that you did not include everything. You just gave a sort of a portion of where you'd been to. So how did you go about organizing it and structuring it? And what helped you decide this needs to stay, this has to go? When I started with the book, I, I started with my diagnosis, you know, sort of those early days of what it was like and the path that led me to activism and eventually to working for the UN. And I just sort of kept piecing more and more stories and remembering, oh, well, this happened and that's important and this happened and that's important and trying to find the things that were sort of unique to my story that versus just every other woman with HIV so that it would be a very specific story and not too scattered because, of mm. course, there's so much to it. Mm -hmm. um, and then in 2014, I think I, I did an MFA at 50 years old. I gave myself the gift of an MFA, which definitely helped me hone my skills, but also gave me um, a community of writers, which really helped me to shape what mattered and what didn't matter 
because there were things that I thought were super important and the readers were like, yeah, we don't really care about that. <laughs> We'd rather hear about more about something else. Um, and then in the end, it was actually my sisters and my nibblings, their, um, their kids, who mm-hmm. spent a summer with me, basically the summer of 2016. And I sent them pages every week. And then on Sundays, we met by Skype. This was pre-pandemic, so we were still Skyping. Mm-hmm. And they were excellent readers. And it was a little bit of a risk because I didn't know if they would just say they liked it because they like me, right? Mm-hmm. But they were actually very good critical readers, and they knew different pieces of it because my sisters are a little older than me, and then, of course, the nibblings are younger. So they had heard different parts of it, and together we sort of pieced together what was missing, cut a lot of what was repetitive, and they were excellent. They were really my my reading team. And then when it finally got picked up by my publisher... We, we did another deep dive edit. So the editor, like, she doesn't know me. She doesn't know my story. She had just read the manuscript and liked it enough to say we want to publish it, but it still needs a little bit of work. And it had been a couple of years, so it was good to review it. And so she went through with the, you know, the red pencil all over mm-hmm. the place. Mm-hmm. But it was really helpful. And at the same time, uh, we realized that we could bookend it with the COVID pandemic. And right, right. Well, so was that sort of an add-on by the time you got the publisher? Yes. The, the, yeah. Oh, yeah. interesting. So whose yeah. idea was that to incorporate it? It was mine, and mostly because I had COVID also. Yeah. So it felt, you know, it felt really relevant. Yeah. I was hoping you could read the excerpt that we talked about. Absolutely. All right, here we go. In my narrator voice. <laughs> it's a very good voice. <laughs> Sister, look, Julie said, as she pointed east toward the border with Kenya, where the storm was now letting loose with full force. Bolts of lightning appeared intermittently in the distance like stitches holding together the sky and earth. Directly above us, the clouds were scudding past to reveal a moonless sky dense with stars. A slab of glistening marble with glints of mica and scarves of galaxies streaming above. Down at our feet, and for at least the length of a football field all around us, fireflies rose out of the damp ground en masse. Indeed, it did appear as if some of the night stars had dropped from the sky and were now drifting back up into place. I stood motionless in awe, listening to thunder in the distance and the muffled rustling of the grass, as the fireflies, and who knows what else, resumed life post-rainfall. Despite this likely being a common occurrence, my Ugandan sisters clearly enjoyed nature's performance as much as I did. The women smiled, pointing at constellations, speaking softly in the local dialect. They spoke English, Swahili, and Luganda, all of which had been used at the conference, but this was a language I'd only heard amongst them. Eventually, we returned to our cots, But now, all fully awake, we chatted about life and love and the reality of living with HIV as a woman. At some point, I brought up dating. All of them happened to be widows who most likely had been infected by their husbands. But as often as is often the case, they'd been blamed for bringing the virus into their families and when their babies had been born HIV infected. 
Some children died within a year or two. Me? I am so happy to be single at long last, Julie said. Financially, things are more difficult, but emotionally, I finally feel free. Me too, me too, added another woman, then another. They spoke quickly, one cutting off the next, about how their marriages were expected, not necessarily desired, and at times abusive, so when their husbands had died, they were often relieved of the duty to serve and obey them. Being widowed allowed them a chance to reclaim their power. Being widowed by AIDS gave them a chance to speak their truths and become activists. Like so many of us diagnosed in those earlier years, we felt we had nothing to lose and everything to gain. If not for ourselves, then at least for future generations. It is so much easier now because nobody expects me to be someone's wife, one woman said. I no longer belong to anyone. Someone else said, because we are widowed and everyone knows it is from AIDS, we get to just be alone for the first time as adults and only look after our children. It is hard, somehow easier. Another added, sex got me into this problem. So honestly, that is the last thing on earth I want now. I want freedom, not more illness, not more death. It was surprising to hear them speak so candidly, but also understandable. Hearing them vocalize their feelings about being single afforded me a deep sense of comfort and relief. When I had begun to navigate my own reality, a few surprises removed some of the societal pressures in my life as well. People assumed, for example, that now I would never have children. Effective mother-to-child prevention of HIV was not yet available. In North America, a positive woman choosing to get pregnant, this is in 1992, was tantamount to a murderess in the eyes of many. Once, soon after my diagnosis, a well-intended friend brought up the subject as we cleaned up after a meal. So, I just want you to know that if anything happens and you have a baby, she said, drawing a serving platter, that I'll help. I mean, I assume you'll do everything to avoid that, but just in case it happens, I will step in. And what exactly does that mean? I asked, stacking glasses in the top rack of the dishwasher. I'll raise the baby for you, you know, if you won't be able to, if you die. I don't remember my answer. I think I tried to look appreciative, knowing that by these comments she'd only meant love and kindness, and was un unaware of how much it hurt to be reminded that I was now considered unfit to bear children. And so, like many others diagnosed in those early years, I mourned my presumed loss of the experience of motherhood. Next on that list was the notion of marriage. Who would ever want me? A broken model when they could find someone healthy who could give them children. I was born in an era when marrying a reasonably good man was the prime measurement of a woman's success. At the time of diagnosis, however, having been given a life expectancy of about five years, I was pretty sure that knocked me out of the running for anything even vaguely resembling a long-term relationship. In some strange way, though, those losses were not entirely awful. On many levels, like the women in Uganda, I felt liberated by no longer being expected to fulfill those roles imposed by society. Dating is complicated at the best of situations. Dating with HIV, I suspected, would be far more difficult to navigate. So I gladly put that low on my wish list 
If science came up with a cure or a way to keep me alive longer, and either children or marriage happened, well, then I'd figure it out. It was cathartic to reorder my priorities. I found an inner strength I hadn't even known I possessed. A deep peace and purpose in the rewards of the activism and work that was consuming more and more of my time. Like some students who forego relationships to focus on their studies, I too felt driven to concentrate my energy on fighting. I'd found support and solidarity in the new sisterhood I'd been welcomed into. Certainly not a group I'd sought to join, but once I had, they became my pillars of strength. Just like those women that night in Uganda, all I was expected to do now was fight to stay alive. With each passing year, I threw myself more fully into activism and learned to be happy with myself, fully at ease in my own company, while always trying to stay one step ahead of the reaper. Honestly, for the time being, that was enough. Thank you. So you've traveled and worked for UNICEF and the UN and done so much work in activism. Do you miss this period of your career and life? I do not. I have zero regrets, but the travel was exhausting. Mm. And it really was, my life was travel. And so um, it was rewarding. I felt good about what I was doing. I had extraordinary experiences, but it was hard to have a life in wherever I lived. And it was just physically really taxing and emotionally as well, because I was always sharing my story and putting myself out there and being vulnerable. And it just sort of wore me down. I really do not miss it. I don't miss the travel. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the only travel I want to do now is to see people and I'd like to see the Northern Lights. That's about yeah. it. And as for the activism, I feel like I'm still doing that through my writing and as a writing and public speaking instructor. Um, mm -hmm. I teach high school kids, students taking college classes early. And so my goal each semester is to help them find their voices and amplify them both on the page and in speaking, because what they have to say is really, really important. And they're the future leaders of mm -hmm. the world. So I'm sort of shaping young activists. <laughs> mm -hmm. You leaned really hard into activism. I don't know that everyone in your situation would have done that. That was a choice that you made and you basically put on the entire cloak of an activist. This was your life. And do you feel, aside from the travel, which became very tiring and hard on your body, did you feel like this was the right choice or did you ever resent it? In hindsight, do you ever feel like had you felt differently about yourself, you might not have felt compelled to be an activist? Or do you think that it was always something you had leanings toward? That's a great question. I think it was always in me. I think it was, there was always an activist in me in little bits and pieces. And I just sort of channeled it all with the diagnosis. And I, I don't think I would have done it differently. I think that it gave me a sense of purpose it made contracting HIV feel like it was somehow served some benefit, even if it wasn't what I wanted or was great for me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it served a bigger purpose. And my late 20s, I had had a couple jobs here and there, but I was still a little bit unclear on what I wanted to do or be in life. And it tethered me to something that mattered. I mean, it shaped everything, right? It shaped, it shaped, shaped your life. 
it absolutely shaped my life. And while I certainly would love to have had a life without HIV, the, what, the path that I did follow, I, I think it was the right one for me. It kept me going. It made me feel like I was staying one step ahead of the virus. Mm-hmm. And I think placing your story and time is so important, too. In the book, you wrote that of a funeral for a friend in San Francisco, quote, a day later, maybe two, I can't recall, I attended his funeral in the Castro District. Most Holy Redeemer was one of the few churches that welcomed the LGBTQ community and embraced HIV people. And so in the decades since you were first diagnosed, have you noticed a shift in the position that the Catholic Church takes about HIV or has there been any change? So um, to answer that, I can do it sort of in two parts. As a person who was raised Catholic, mm-hmm. I haven't really been involved in the community for decades and decades and decades since I left my parents' house after high school, basically. I do get the sense from other people who are still involved in the Catholic Church that it's much, much more open-minded and relaxed. And certainly under this current pope, he has, like he's pushing the limits a little bit each each time he states something new. So I think it's probably better than it was. And in terms of the work, probably that's also been a long mm, 15 years or something. But at various points, my work overlapped with Catholic Charities, which is um, a branch of the church that does relief work in developing countries and needy populations. And they had sort of left it as it's a bigger sin to infect somebody with HIV than to use a condom, which was fascinating to me. So they're sort of like, you know, we're not going to promote condoms, but we're also not going to stop other groups from distributing them. We're just going to kind of pretend we're not paying attention (laughs) because we know that in the end, it's much better to keep people alive than worry Mm -hmm. about this nonsense about condoms. So I saw that as a, a step forward. But I don't really have more up-to-date data, but I, but I do kind of feel like it has shifted. And I think that the current pope is trying to make it a little bit, the church a little bit more aligned with mm-hmm. 2023 instead of mm-hmm. 1600s. Or so. Yeah. Do you yeah. get a sense that, and again, I don't mean to make you the, the only uh, voice for, you know, HIV-positive women in this Mm -hmm. country so please let me know if this is not okay to pick your brain about but what about the way you perceive heterosexual communities think about HIV or people who have it has that changed at all do you think you know not as much as I would have expected by this point to be honest I Mm. I feel like I don't have the sort of visceral reaction of people physically pulling away from me that I did in the early, early mm-hmm. days. Mm-hmm. But people still sort of look at me differently like, what? You have HIV? <laughs> How's that possible? You're not a gay man. So I think that in North America and Europe that it's still, there's still a warped perception of who has HIV. Mm-hmm. But the very sort of immediate reaction that people have tends to be much, much more mild than it used to be. So it's, yeah. yeah, I just really, you know, it's so interesting. I'm, I'm taking a pause myself here because right now I kind of understand the place HIV has had in our history and there's a little bit of perspective there, but I really have to stop and embrace the idea that you were at the beginning of this, like dawning awareness that women had it and that you were like the poster child mm-hmm. and 
the burden of that, the pressure, it's, it's heavy. Yeah. Yep. No arguments on that. <laughs> it was, yeah. It was, it was a lot. And I just sort of felt like, you know, I had a tricky role to play because I wanted to make sure that I was forever raising issues mm-hmm. regarding women and HIV without like trying to take away somebody else's voice who could speak for themselves. Mm-hmm. But at any point when other people, other women with HIV couldn't be in the room, I felt it was my duty to speak up always. And I, and I still do, basically. Mm-hmm. This, this leads right into the idea of shame that I wanted to touch on because it does play a significant role in your memoir. And you talk about how it pervaded your life, uh, both from your family of origin and HIV. And I sent you an excerpt from page 68. I don't know if you happen to have that. It's a paragraph, which I'm happy to read unless you have it near you. I can, I can read it. Yeah. Can, it's from the My Worlds Had Collided. Sure. So let me read that. My worlds had collided. I cried for days until my grief shifted to anger. Shame, like death, was a familiar emotion. I'd been reminded regularly, as we kids all were, that we were the cause of our mother's misery. She should never have had children. She was talented and extremely intelligent, but maternal, she was not. She managed as best she could, but never developed a filter for voicing how much she resented having to care for us. Each child heard a different version of how we had ruined her life, but we all got one. Thank you. What is your experience with shame now and your sense of caring for yourself? So uh, my mom, who sort of instilled a lot of that in us, probably not intentionally, but but did, um, she has since passed away. And I feel relieved in many ways because I think she was an unhappy person and so she's not miserable but also I feel like I don't have to meet her standards anymore and I never really did but it it took her passing to sort of allow myself to lift that veil Mm. Um, but I still it's really deeply ingrained in me and I definitely still feel it and I think that I feel that if I'm not doing something of service for other people, that I am not worthy, which mm-hmm. is convoluted and not healthy. And I'm well aware of that, <laughs> but I still don't know how to totally get over it. But I also know that doing things to help other people and make the world better is, is not a bad thing. So if that's what it takes for me to feel good about my contributions to the world, then I think there are much worse situations I could be in. So I'm you know, I sort of, I'm okay with it. I'm like at peace with this is who I am. Hmm. And by doing this, I feel better. I know that I'm doing something that is good. Um, mm-hmm. So it's kind of That's okay. That's hard though. That's kind of hard to, I don't know how, how hard it beats within you, this idea that you have to be of service if you let yourself off for days at a time, weeks at a time, or intermittent moments during the day, or if you feel <laughs> this pull that you need to be doing something to prove that you deserve to be here. Yeah, I I don't think it's like an every moment of every day sort of thing. It's just sort of an overarching that I have to be doing something bigger with my life than just Mm -hmm. taking care of me. Mm -hmm. Which is interesting, you know, because you you do have potentially fragile health. So Mm -hmm. in some ways, one could argue, an outsider like me could argue <laughs> that you of all people shouldn't have to worry about doing that because we need to take care of you. You are right. And I think my doctor would probably argue the same thing. 
<laughs> but, yeah. Yeah, I, I'm not very good at it. I'm trying. I'm trying. Yeah, to be yeah. Better, well, but, of course. Yeah. And then there's this uh, expression, again, I don't mean now to slam you with, you just stop doing that? Because that's not <laughs> what I mean either. As my father always says, which I've mentioned on this show before, so it's kind of a refrain now, don't should on yourself, right? Like we don't have to, you know, try to be different from how we are. But so, so I know that you'd been in fairly healthy shape up until about 2008, mm-hmm. but then you sort of had this time when your health failed a little bit. So, you know, we don't have to read that excerpt but I'm curious if you can talk about how you thought that you were going to be a long-term non-progressor and then Mm -hmm. what that is and then what actually happened and how you dealt with it. Yeah, so a long-term non-progressor is basically somebody who has HIV, it's detectable in their body, but they never progress to disease. And uh, on average, if a person gets HIV and it's not treated, within five to seven years, generally, they start to see serious illness. And for some reason in me, that didn't happen for like 16, 17 years. It was a really long time. Even with your workload and travel, it's kind of surprising. It's very surprising. Yeah. Uh, One of my friends who's an epidemiologist used to call me his favorite little green monkey because I was, (laughs) (laughs) I guess it's who they were. That's so nice. (laughs) (laughs) But then the work just caught up with me and I wasn't taking care of myself physically or emotionally particularly. And my body just was like, nope, we're not doing this, can't do it. And I had gone from being not undetectable. And when we say undetectable, that means whether they can see the virus on your uh, blood work or not. So I wasn't completely undetectable, but I had very high numbers in the right place and low numbers in the right place and within a few months that all shifted everything went haywire went the wrong way i lost a ton of weight i could barely walk my handwriting was like chicken scratch Mm. i was just i was my body was starting to shut down basically Mm -hmm. and so my doctor said you know you either start treatment or you start getting your papers in order because those are your two options and because I was so sick, my brain also wasn't working quite right. And I, mm. I like actually had to go to therapy to convince myself that I wanted to get better. Mm. And mm-hmm. in the end, um, surprisingly, when Obama was elected, it kind of gave me a, a sense of hope for the world. I kind of wrote on that vibe of good mm-hmm. feeling. That helped a little bit. And then I thought long and hard about my sisters my my siblings children and i i'm like yeah i really want to be here to see what those people become Mm. because they're such fascinating young individuals and those are the two things that sort of got me to um get over myself and (laughs) start treatment (laughs) and also you know then they they were the people who helped you with the book right yeah yeah they were there for you exactly they yes that's so true i didn't even put that together but you're right yeah. Yeah. And then the COVID, you, you did get COVID. And what year was it that you got COVID? I am a virus overachiever. So I got COVID <laughs> right at the beginning. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Were you afraid? I, I was, you know, I, I was afraid and not afraid. Like, I think I probably was not as afraid as some people because I'd already been dealing with HIV for so long. Hmm. On the other hand, I live in currently live in New York City. And the city was just it was yeah, I've a heard. horrible, horrible scenario, and it was really frightening because the city was quiet, and New York is 
never quiet. Yeah. And I was sort of sick enough that my doctor was really concerned, and they called me, I think, every day for a month. Wow. But they also said, you know, if your lungs are not killing you, don't go near a hospital. Mm. So I just stayed home, and like everybody else, we were on serious quarantine lockdown. And I really thought that I had had a mild case. And compared to the people who didn't make it, obviously I did have a mild case. Mm. And my lungs were never really damaged. I definitely felt the pain, but not not like a lot of people who are still Mm -hmm. dealing with those sorts of respiratory problems. But what happened was my left eye, I developed an epiretinal membrane on the back of the eye. But because it was during COVID lockdown, I didn't get any get it seen to until the end of 2020, by which Mm. time it had done permanent damage. So I now see things two different sizes, and I have a permanent squiggle when I look at things with my left eye. So it has become really hard for me to read. And grading papers is really hard. (laughs) Oh, goodness. So was this something that happened because of COVID? Yeah. And then untreated, it just stayed. Yeah, exactly. So eventually I had surgery. I've had two surgeries on my left eye. But basically, the best anybody can come up with is that because of inflammation in my head is uh, how that happened. Mm -hmm. And I also have a headache on the left side of my head. Like if you're like, if I part my hair, it's about that's where about it is. It's a just a little stretch of head on the left side. And it has hurt for the last three and a half years. It's never gone away. And it's not bad enough that I can't function, but it's always there. Oh, man. I'm so sorry about that. (laughs) It's a lot. It's a lot. It's Um, a lot. And and it's really weird because, you know, it's sort of like, how did I manage 30 years with HIV (laughs) and then COVID, you know, like. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Like an HIV superstar, but then COVID kind of. That's really, I'm sorry about that. There's so much fallout. There's so much fallout, but look at how productive you are despite all that because you're teaching too. Yeah. What are some of your favorite memoirs? What, what memoirs do you turn to or helped you during the time you were writing yours or that you recommend? So I have a list of about 4,000 memoirs, <laughs> but... Um, maybe maybe just give me four, four or five right now. <laughs> but I narrowed it down. One that I really love, and, and some of these are older. I think they're worth revisiting. One is You Don't Look Like Anyone I Know by Heather Sellers. And she writes about living with face blindness. Mm-hmm. So she doesn't remember what someone's face looks like the minute she turns away. Mm-hmm. And it's fascinating, and <laughs> it is beautifully written. I also feel like everybody should read So You Want to Talk About Race by Jomo mm-hmm. Luo, which is sort of a mixture of memoir and how to deal with race. And she writes it from the perspective of being mixed race. So mm-hmm. she grew up with a white mom, but she definitely looks black. And so she sort of gives everybody tips on how to navigate these conversations from her experience in life. And it's, um, it's wonderful. Um, more recently, The uh, Madman in the Woods by Jamie Gearing, which is about the fact that she grew up next to the Unibom- Unabomber, mm-hmm. Ted Kaczynski. And that is beautifully written and so interesting. Yes, she was a guest, actually. Awesome. She's amazing. Yeah. And then the most recent ones I've read, uh, Madeleine Albright's memoir, Hell and Other Destinations, which is a really fabulous book. And I learned a lot about like women in politics, mm-hmm. um, which I loved. 
um, Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer, who's a Native American writer and botanist and talks about... Is that the braiding sweetgrass? Is that right? Braiding sweetgrass, exactly. Okay, Yeah, so good. And then one that I sort of popped onto my radar um, because Audible recommended it to me and gave it to me for free, which I probably wouldn't have found otherwise, is Self-Portrait in Black and White by Thomas Chatterton Williams. And it's, again, it's another perspective on race um, that just totally blew my mind open. I hadn't considered half of the things that he has written about, and I read a lot of books about race, so I loved that one. Oh, and I great. Think, yeah, I think the thing that I like most about memoirs is when they take me somewhere else mm-hmm. to a part yeah. of yeah, some, some other part of the world that I don't know about or an experience that I have never had, and that's... Yes. Yeah. For me, it's, it, other locations are great. And also, uh, if I feel like I've embodied, been able to embody just a little bit or mm-hmm. a lot, the, the writer's experience yeah. and that what they've sensed and, you know, felt and, and what it was like to be in their life. So what advice do you have for writers working on their memoirs? Um, so my advice is tell the whole story, get it all out and don't worry about fixing it yet. Just like get it out. Mm-hmm. And that I think is the hardest part because we get so like, oh, but if somebody's feelings are gonna be hurt or should I write about this? Or I don't know if it's too much, just get it out. Like nobody's gonna read it except for you because if you don't, then you're gonna hold back. And then I think that after you've gotten through all of that, then you work through the shaping of it and you'll see where maybe you need to dig a little bit deeper, some things that repeat, you could cut it, things like that. And then I think the other thing that's really important, at least it was in my experience, was having a handful of people you really trust who will give you honest feedback, not just, oh, I love it, it's great, keep (laughs) working on it, but actually say, this is lovely, but, or Mm -hmm. I want more of this, or that part is just not working for me and here is why. Because we all think that in our mind, it all makes perfect sense. But without the readers, you don't know if it's actually been conveyed effectively. So it's really Mm -hmm. important to have some people reading along the way. uh, Because ultimately, you're writing the book for somebody else to consume as Mm -hmm. a a book or an audio book. We need those readers. We need the early readers and the readers' readers. (laughs) (laughs) And just the last thing I've thrown in is, because I narrated my own audio book, I realized, I, I know, always tell my students, you have to read your work out loud, and I do read my work out loud, but I hadn't really read it as a narrator. I was just re- reading it more to catch, you know, typos and grammatical things. Whereas reading it as a narrator, I realized, oh, the, sa- the cadence of a sentence mm-hmm. or repetition or alliteration, when it works, when it doesn't work. And I think that had I read the entire thing out loud, with it, you know, thinking like, how's this going to be as an audiobook for somebody? I mm. would have made more edits. Oh my gosh, reading aloud is so helpful. Yeah. I remember recording my audiobook for my memoir, and the, the director that was there pointed out a couple of issues like, you've got typos there. And then I realized I was repeating words and sentences. So, 
definitely yeah I mean repeating like the same verb maybe or something like that so I reading aloud is so helpful definitely and I, I think what you're also saying is that when you read it like a narrator it was more performative and so you really got the sense of how it could be received exactly yeah you're not just at your desk like sometimes I'll print it out and I'll be like blah, 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 blah. but that's exactly. not gonna do it <laughs> yeah um okay and lastly Martina where can people find you so the easiest is my website which is martina-clark.com and then I'm mostly just on Instagram these days and it's at Martina Clark writer um I don't really use Twitter much anymore because it is it's, it's sad now I know. But, uh, <laughs> I can't tell you how many people I've interviewed that like we all have to kind of discuss that and get sad about it. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I'll put all of that in the show notes so people can connect with you and find cool. your book. And thank you so much for spending this time with me and for sharing your story. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Ronit. It's really been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for tuning in to Let's Talk Memoir. For more about this episode and my guest, please visit the link in the show notes or on Instagram at Ronit Plank. That's R-O-N-I-T-P-L-A-N-K. You can also follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok. If you liked this episode of Let's Talk Memoir, please go ahead and share it with your friends and subscribe. And if you have two more seconds, you can rate and review it on Apple Podcasts, which really does help other people find the show. Thank you so much for being here.